Hello and welcome to China Talk. In exciting personal news, I'm now an adjunct fellow at CNAS, which is awesome, but unfortunately, it does not pay. If you're interested in hiring me full time or as a consultant, please reach out. The sooner you do, the sooner I will stop asking for work on this show. Also, have you ever thought to yourself, man, I really wish I could pour my morning coffee in a China Talk mug, or see a Jordan Schneider hand-drawn postcard of Jiang Zemin or Bo Xilai on my fridge? Now, here's your chance. The folks at Glow.fm who run my donations have set up a referral tracker for the podcasts, and the ten listeners who refer the most people get their choice of either mug or postcard. Please go to refer.glow.fm/chinatalk, get your referral code, text your friends, and tell them to start listening. Do note that we recorded this episode on Wednesday, October thirteenth, one day before Dalmore Mori and the Houston Rockets parted ways. We have two lawyers turned sports podcasters: Hunter Sher, who runs the Mandarin language Fanjuan Tiu or Sports Inverted, and Nate Duncan of Dunk on Basketball. First off, Hunter, can you give us a little bit of history of basketball in China? How did it get to the level it is as being one of the most popular sports on the mainland? I tend to view most of the modern sports or most of the The current sports presence in China, either inspired by foreign presence in China, or like they were literally brought in by like foreign missionaries, probably 80 years ago or 100 years ago. And I think basketball was among the same group brought in by the missionaries when they were starting to found colleges back in Shanghai, in Tianjin, in Beijing. This was like Republic era. And then when we were talking about modern basketball presence and the popularity, it mostly started from the 80s. I would say the popularity was Michael Jordan first time revealed them on the television. That was in the 90s when the I think David Stern had a very hard but worthy deal for the NBA to put on the show in the CCTV5 for free for several years, and that was the literally the first group of fan base from Michael Jordan. I think. Some people even watch some bit of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, and then starting from there, we obviously have Yao, and Yao proposed or pushed the NBA into the mainstream popularity in China, and then Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, and then you got this new generation, maybe including myself, that we just grew up with Yao, literally in our very first memory of professional sports. And we we're just used to NBA being there. But when I was actually preparing for this episode, I was realizing that, for example, I was watching this YouTube video by an animator who were, I think, recreating a show or an anime called Slam Dunk by Takehiko Inoue, which is a famous、uh, Japanese manga artist,、sure. also super huge, actually contributing to I think for the '80s, the Balinho, the post '80s, the post '90s. Their first group of popularity of like basketball fans in China as well. I like intuitively speaking, it seems like it's like directly inspired by NBA or the globalization of professional basketball. But I literally just realized that how Japanese influences like these manga also contributed to the popularity right now. Yeah, and it, that's an interesting little irony because, of course, like. The NBA is not huge in Japan, but it just there、right. just happened to be this one kind of weirdo animator who ended up making a big hit, and it wasn't necessarily based on the fact that basketball was so popular in Japan, but just that he was incredibly talented. Sure, Nate, can you talk a little bit about this from the NBA side? What were the sort of main efforts by、uh, by Stern and later Silver, and what is and how important is the is China to the NBA today? Obviously, in the media here in 2002, when Yao was about to get drafted. 
there was a lot of discussion about how they had to negotiate that with the Chinese Communist Party to have him come over and what percentage of his earnings were going to go back to the Chinese Communist Party and how much he was going to be able to play on the national team and stuff like that. But I think there was a, a thought that, number one, it was going to be a really important a really important component of the NBA's future business. And people obviously always talk about the Chinese market in any kind of a, a business here. And then number two, there was a thought that there are going to be a lot of Chinese players who are going to be really good. And one of the things was, was like, yeah, think of, of how big the population is. And you would hear these wild rumors of, oh, they've got 107 footers that are just like waiting to come <laughs> over because their population is so big. And you know, obviously that's never materialized, I think, to the disappointment of just about everyone. I think everyone would love for there to be more Chinese players capable of playing in the NBA. But outside of Yao, no one has really made an impact. And then obviously... You know, the number has been bandied about in the $400, $500 million a year range is what the Chinese market is worth to the NBA. But, of course, they're trying to grow on a global scale. And I think there's been a perception that there are more growth opportunities available in China than perhaps here in the U.S. Before we turn to fall 2019 and Daryl Morey, uh, Hunter, can you talk a little bit to the you know, talent development process in China. The, there was a big embarrassment. I was actually at the game that China lost to Venezuela where like people were crying in the stands uh, that they couldn't get out of the group stage right. of the global basketball championships. But what is it right. about the system that team sports like soccer and basketball, China hasn't really been able to achieve at the level that would be expected of a country so large and so committed to, to sports? I, I, I'm glad you actually referred to that game because I was not surprised at all when they lost to Venezuela because that Chinese team is not that good. But like obviously, when it comes to national games, people here locally have a weird fantasy of how good they are. <laughs> a lot of times, they were like fantasized by nationalism field or just their pride or something. But I would say that, for example, a big component, if you want one takeaway from this discussion, is that the, the Chinese system for nurturing sports talents hugely relied on the Xiao, the sports school, which is a separate system of athlete school that literally try to identify sports talents from the age of, I think, eight or 10. So starting from primary school, like you got all these youth coaches or for the juvenile level, they try to identify who are the real talents for which particular sport, which obviously you can see the influence from industrial policy or maybe a even more developed policy, sure. fan policy, I guess. Then, like, that would be a problem for group sports in a sense that on a team level, a lot of the player development process comes to the players having that creation process or understanding how to actually play with a team. But like at age 8 or 10, it's very hard to tell, for example, who got the real eyes for passing who really understand how to defend on the floor and especially for example in basketball the problem is that youth coaches literally oftentimes try to eye for the one who have the biggest chance to grow taller and who who literally already can be faster and more explosive than other kids at the age of eight or ten and that that's not very indicative of how much commitment they're going to put in or how their basketball IQ are going to be sure. or how trained or how understanding there will be. There's only so much motivation that you can provide externally to 
a player and particularly if they're really being brought into this system of hey this is your life right, at age right. eight or ten right. that you're gonna even if you love it at the beginning you're going to burn out at some point i think and especially if you get maybe this is too much of a western attitude to to look at it with but if you are told that this is what you're going to do and you're forced to do it at some point there is either there's going to be a rebellion or you're just going to not be as passionate about it as yeah. someone who's yes this is what i have chosen to do i have talent with this i started doing this because i love it and then as it turned out i was really good and i ended up making this my career so it, it does seem like selecting group x is we're going to focus everything on these guys well then what what happens if you don't get selected at age eight or ten are you just out of the system completely yeah i would add a little bit to that because i I guess i should also add in the 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 thing with sports school and the thing with the early separation of kids are that are the biggest problem i in my eyes is that you literally push the kids to a professional athlete's life and the thing is that you can't push all the kids so for example the 1.3 billion people you just mentioned like oh they should have so much talent in this talent pool, right? Such a large population, but literally only thousands, or I would say 3,000 to 4,000 kids are pre-selected for the sports school on the local level, yeah. which means that the 1.3 billion, most people are still crashed into common school, taking exams after exams, where you got all these people in the regular school dreaming about playing professional basketball, but they never really got regular coaching. And then the ASI school, they have no other choice. They, they might want to go to Tsinghua, be an engineer, be a scientist, but they never get a chance. And even the, the pro and also that the youth culture is in the system because it's fixed. It's not really that encouraging a market market size system. And they're not really well paid enough and they're not well trained enough in basketball knowledge or trying to update themselves or keeping track of how modern basketball have developed. And that has caused a huge lag between their understanding of basketball and what currently is playing right now. It seems like Chinese children generally have a lot less free time due to some of the academic pressures that are put on them compared to children in other areas. And so if you're not in this program where you're being groomed to be a professional athlete, you just don't really have time to just go out and play on the playground and have a good time with your friends and fall in love with the game. And then you can play. Is there like an equivalent of like playing for your high school or anything like that? No, uh, no. In China? Um, yeah. The the thing, oh, I, guess, I guess I should be fair that some of the school these days in the super large cities are trying to offer them. But that's only like part of like how the income inequalities are showing on the student education level. Like yeah. you, you got all these rich kids and more than upper class kids in the large cities, they got all these access to not only basketball, soccer, but today American football as well. You got coaches literally designed for them when there's not even professional leagues of American football in China. They're literally just training for that sports, sometimes for their own recreation or for their, say, aspect for American colleges in the future. So there's, there's a huge gap there. And like, I, I often talk to a lot of my friends who also went to school in the States that like the first culture shock, if you're, if you're a sportsman, the huge culture shock a lot of times are that how accessible US average US person have to sports chances or decent sports coaching or just regular yeah. sports resources. Like they, they got all these access in middle school and primary school. You got coaches. Maybe somebody's father become the say football teacher or the soccer teacher. Right? A lot of times that happens. But like 
even that father usually have had experience in wrestling or in other sports, they at least have a decent understanding of how to train your body, not in a totally deteriorating way. But like looking, if you're back this day, a decade ago or two decades ago, uh, ask a top Chinese school, they will hardly have anyone who have a decent training. And if you have somebody who goes to gym to train their muscles a lot, starting from middle school, people look at him like, oh, this guy is super weird. And you also have people having this sense of or like thinking that too muscular are not smart enough, which is... I'm just picking this out. It's not like everybody thinks this way, but it obviously sure. and a lot of the older generation. So like my parents and for people growing up from the 50s or 60s actually does think that. So that also relates to China's history of respecting, say, intellectuals or literaries. But like it's unfortunately how it contributes to the talent nurturing system right now. Hunter, could you talk a little bit about the uh, the Gaokao reforms? Uh, physical education requirement. I think that there has been generally calls to mix in sports and to to take up a larger proportion of the Gaokao score or even the high school entrance, the Zhongkao score system. So like right now, the requirements for PE or for the sports are just, you need to pass this specific test sometimes for boys or for, for guys are just hold-ups or 1,000 meter run within a specific period of time. And you pass a specific number and that's it. But like some people are trying to move the system to given that larger proportion, say, if you do super well in sports, maybe you can get much more points. You can maybe add like one fifth or one fourth of what used to be a math exam or English exam or Chinese exam to account for in the exam system, which would really hugely motivate parents to push children to to train themselves uh, for the scoring purposes. But is that really for the professional athlete training purposes? I don't really know. Um, uh, Hunter, so the really tall kids who play on the, the, the PKU and the Tsinghua and the Renmin basketball teams, do most of them come from the system? Are you talking about the CUBA players? Yeah, the CUBA the, players. This is, a, for Nate, this is a Chinese, I think, the undergraduate or rather. It's basically equivalent of NCAA. But yeah, yeah, they mostly come from non-sports school systems. So they, or I think, may, or I'm not super sure on this. Maybe somebody dropped out of the sports school. They were originally training for some Olympic like sports and they lost that prospect. They switched to a regular school and then they try to make it still with their sports training by becoming this so-called special sports student. Or, or I don't know, the teacher, the, the student with the, special knack or special talents in sports. So there are indeed these kind of quotas for sports for students who are talented in a particular sport. And it's not necessarily restricted restricted to basketball or football or some other kind of sports. But Tsinghua and Beida obviously they are encouraging this and they also have a I think a good connection with already established athletes from the Olympics program who just want to get a master's degree for a year or sometimes for other social sciences degrees relating to the sports industry. But right, the players are not really from the athlete school, from the sports school, which sometimes, I think these days if you're seeing the reforms by Yao trying to encourage college players from PKU, from Tsinghua to enter the CBA professional leagues, 
especially the development from the last few years is very refreshing. Sure. Um, uh, uh, Hunter, I let's back up more. a little bit. Talk about how Yao ended up running the uh, CBA, which is the equivalent of the NBA in China. And what was the state he saw the CBA in? And what are the sorts of reforms that he's been that he's been pushing in his tenure? Okay. He came in right now. It's probably the, his third year or fourth year reigning as uh, as, the ch- as the chairman of the CBA Association, but not the basketball league, the regulation aspect of it, but which is very rare because Yao is not really in the system or Yao is not, I, I don't think he's a party member. He is with, he's in the Zhenxie. He's in the, I actually don't know the English for that. But, he's in the MPC. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, 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 I think so. He's always there. The weird super talk representative doesn't fit in with you anyone. That, that, that's always his... Yeah, and he always proposed that reforms relating to sports or trying to encourage professional sports. That's true. And But like for years, I've been a huge fan of Yao, but I never really expect him to get into that position of the literally the leading figure of regulation of Chinese basketball because that's always, literally most of the time that this kind of like a, a position of power reserved for the people or the officials coming from that sports school system or the local sports bureau system, which is very closely tied to that sports school system. And that's part of the problem when Yao came into the position. When they try to reform the system, you obviously are trying are touching the cakes of people who are sitting on the sports bureau and there's already a say a beneficial system for them when it comes to like how many years people work in this bureau, they're gonna get to which sports school or these coaches can get promoted to a local sports bureau official. So, so there's a fixed system there, and there's a very reluctant force facing reforms. But Yao has been pushing one of the big reforms I already mentioned is the CUBA's connection with CBA. So he is he pushed for the CBA lottery, basically. The you, nowadays you have lottery system with with uh, CUBA talents came in, or sometimes even including players from Hong Kong, from Taiwan. They try to play professional basketball in CBA, and they can come in. This is actually very new, I think. This is really established network and really like a lottery system, which is which means it can happen on an annual basis, and club can really reach out, having maybe a scout in the CUBA to actually try to identify talents. Is very rare. This is probably not a thing at all five years ago. So you, literally, this could be a signal to you of how raw the Chinese like talent developing system for basketball really is. Sure. And there are several other reforms Yao have been pushing for. The I think he made some of the contractual agreement or the process much more professional. Like you can nowadays, you can really see like how. Like when the free agency start, like how the player contract should be or like how the agent should work. That's really not a thing, maybe, I think, before Yao came on. And it's not just not really publicly like access. There's no public access for average sports fan or basketball fans to understand how like you, you can register as an agent or you the free agent came in. There There have been several... Famous cases of, for example, when Yi come back or when Ding Yan Yuhang come back. That was the one he was with Shandong and he had that little stint with Dallas, Dallas Mavericks, but it didn't really work out because of his injury. But he came back and, and he had that huge fight or love-hate relationship with his home team in Shandong. So you got all these huge star in CBA that kind of contribute to why there's a need of the professionalization of the contractual process. And Yao was a huge part of it. 
that one as well. And other reforms, including like pushing for smaller basketball to be more access, accessible in rural China, in places where really there's literally zero decent special education. So children can start with a smaller basketball. And these are some of the measures. And I should say this is very impressive comparing to the other, say, director of like Chinese football or Chinese soccer or director of other sports like uh, regulation, because mostly they they are not in the public that much. They really they talk about regulation, disciplines, uh, players, morality that much, but not that much about the market. The trying to marketize professional leagues in China. Yeah, it's very it's clear he's learned from his experience in the American system, and also has the clout and knows how to play the game and in the back rooms uh, to a level which is surprising for someone who spent most of his adult life in the states as opposed to going to Lianghui meetings and what have you. Nate, any reactions to to that before I move on um, to the Hong Kong stuff? I I think it's interesting to talk about what it it is that why it is that Chinese players have not been as good as has been hoped. If you look at Yao, he was a singular talent, 7-6. And I think actually that the Chinese system was really good for Yao in terms of just his ability to develop his shooting and his hook shot game and his fundamentals. But Yao is also a singular talent. And I think he also had a singular personality uh, as someone that that everyone loved, who is just really like an awesome guy that loved basketball and really could fit in anywhere. And so if you look at some of the weaknesses of the Chinese national team in previous or or in subsequent years after Yao, I really guard play is the number one thing that -hmm. you would look at that just hasn't been there. And Mm -hmm. that's something where you would think, Chinese overall are shorter, but there's nothing that's preventing them from developing guards in the same way that any other culture is. Guards really, you have to have the skill level. You have to have the passion. You, If you're a big guy you can, and you're reasonably athletic and coordinated, like you can make it through without that high of a skill level. Guards, that's one of the biggest disappointments to me. And I think one of the biggest weaknesses of the system is just that you, that type of improvisational ability the best way to develop that is playing on your own with more freedom, developing the passion, developing the self-start work ethic to really develop moves on your own, to play in an unstructured environment, to read the game. That's one of the biggest things. In addition to they haven't really had that many really athletic guys other than maybe uh, E to come out of China either. But those are the the two biggest impediments that, that I've seen just in terms of the players that are being produced. We can talk about why it is that hasn't happened. We've hit on some of those things already. But those are the things to me that seem like why the Chinese have not been as competitive as they would like to be on the world stage. The quick important thing about Yao is that he is very different. Like he he is a total anomaly from that athletic school or sports school system. Like you rarely see somebody who are so intelligent as Yao and like you say, so likable, so personable, which is very rare. Unfortunately, most of the kids who go to the sports school, they are pushing to a system that's like skewed in a way that's maybe not reflecting what real society could be like. So some of the athletes who came out of that system not really getting to that level, they have a little bit of a period of time adjusting to the regular society. And that already explains to it. And Yao also was super hardworking. Yao was probably one of the most hard, hardworking athletes you ever find. Like he was like, just to put it out there, he was a 
85% shooting, like free throw shooting center. He used to take the technical free throws. That, I explained to you, like how literally how hard or how much attention he paid to his, to honing his skills. Like coming back to the, for example, the guards, the problem of developing the guard, I think that still relates to how there's a huge lag between the Chinese coaching system back then and the system right now. Like you're starting to see like more and more guard, like the one you mentioned. And the same from the same team, Zhao Ziwei also play a very, I would say, Americanized style. So we actually, you, you see these local people call them like the Anshan Baoluo and the Liaoning Westbrook. So there's a Chris Paul of Anshan and the Westbrook of Liaoning, which is <laughs> indicative of like Liu Wei style would never remind you of an American player like Westbrook or like Chris Paul. But so yeah, traditionally the, I think the coaching system really push like players into one, two, three, four, five, that kind of a numbering to that fixed role purpose, so which means a point guard, they're really not encouraged to shoot for themselves. And if they shoot or if they score or try to create a bit on their own, they're going to be scolded by the coaches. Not always. Some coaches obviously will encourage it. But like a lot of times, coaches will be hard. And some of the famous coaches like Jiang Xingquan is a very renowned and respectable coaches in, in the Chinese system will be were famous for being harsh to players. And the, you got all these coaches that starting from the youth system, tell the point guards, tell the shooting guards that this is your role. Like point guards, like just pass the ball and shooting guards shoot the ball very well. But like, I, I think overall that comes to the low level of competition on the junior level and the professional level. Like you have seen like the very talented scoring guard or the shooting guard the Hui Dong, which is nicknamed sometimes the Chinese Jordan, that was also playing in the in the 90s, and they were part of the team that beats I think Spain in the Barcelona Olympics or Atlanta. I'm not very sure, but like they got into the final eights for for the Olympic basketball, which is that was unprecedented for that time. And on that team, you have like Hui Dong leading everything. Like he was huge. He was like arguably the best guard China has ever seen for the national team. And that was from the 90s. So like the timing doesn't really explain everything. But like I would say that just the system really doesn't offer that much competition to players on a junior level. And the fact that I think the marketization of the sports system contributed to the fact that some of the coaches, very good coaches from the previously very planned institutionalized sports training system they adjust very hard to that professional system, to the market economy. And the you would, for example, like in the past, like if, you have, if you're a good youth coach in China for basketball, that's all right. Like you have a decent salary. You have the same salary maybe for a state-owned businesses employee. And that's all right. You have a decent life. But like for a new bet or for a more younger generation, the market economy is here maybe if you are still a used basketball coach, your earn your earnings are maybe one tenth or even less of a programmer or like a sales representative will make, and that would hugely like disencourage like people who have a real understanding of basketball or just like real talent like trying to become a good coach. And that was also part of Yao coming from Yao came out of China in 2002, so so his training system or his the Chinese system he went through are really have a credited to the 90s system but like, or even before. But there's a huge gap when the market economy opens 
and the professional league are trying to develop like corruption or part of it and like just the mismanagement of the CBA or the Chinese basketball in general contribute to why they're just not good coaching and not good use development throughout that. It's, it's a real sad irony. I remember reading an interview with Evgeny Malkin, who's a Russian star a hockey player who was from the absolute middle of nowhere. And I think someone asked him, like, how did you get your skill? And he was like, man, I just watched YouTube videos and I skated around and tried to do what they were doing in the, in the NHL. There's enough NBA in China for kids to want to play like Steph Curry and Damian Lillard and whatnot. But the fact that there's a system which won't let them do that is there are bigger tragedies in the world, but it is it, it's certainly unfortunate. But it's getting better now. You Like young kids literally... If they're a basketball fan, they watch American basketball. And, like, you, you can't even find hardcore, like, followings of high school basketball in the States or NCAA these days in China. But the problem still is that most of the people that I just mentioned, the hardcore fans, they come from the regular. They never really get a chance to play professional or have a chance to train for professional basketball. Still, that, that problem exists, which is why I said the CBA lottery, the bridge between the college basketball and the professional basketball that Yao builds, just very uh, fresh new, but very important for the future. Nate, do you want to walk us quickly through, just give us a refresher on the series of events that took place last year with regards to Daryl Morey and Hong Kong Independence? Right before the NBA China Games, Daryl Morey tweeted something that was uh, supportive of Hong Kong, free Hong Kong was it. And by the time uh, everyone landed in China, there were a lot of people who were really upset. Ultimately, those games were played before no fans, taken off CCTV. They're only back on very recently. And, you know, there are a lot of demands that action be taken against Daryl Morey. The NBA, despite having some slip ups in terms of their messaging, including a, a Mandarin language statement that was a lot more conciliatory towards the Chinese Communist Party. They ultimately ended up supporting Maury's right to free speech and didn't really seem like they caved in, at least at that time. And now a year later, the games are back on CCTV with the hiring of the founder of CCTV's son to head the NBA China. Nate, can you talk a bit about the sort of reaction of the players, of the ownership, and the sort of fault lines that that came down on as well as how the NBA responded to what ended up becoming uh, an enormous national controversy of senators and I believe Trump as well telling them not to back down. Two questions there first. I mean, we'll start with what happened in the NBA. Essentially what's happened is, and this is something that has happened with a, a number of American corporations trying to do business in China. There has been either overtly or more subtly, a chilling of speech. Now, I think it's convenient for the NBA that very few players in the NBA, Rudy Gobert thus far is the only one, actually seem to have any sort of affinity for pointing out some of the excesses of the Chinese Communist Party. And so the fact that American players aren't really interested in those issues, they had a lot of backlash against Daryl Morey. So did a, a lot of people who worked in the league of just, hey, Daryl, why did you have to mess with our money? We had a good thing going in China. Why did you have to, to say something about this? And obviously, I, I was very disappointed in that because I think that Daryl Morey has a very good point with his concerns. And there are 
Some other people who likely agree with him, Steve Kerr probably does, but I thought Kerr was really an instructive example. He had actually tweeted something supportive of Hong Kong resistance, for lack of, of a, a better word, three weeks before Mori, which didn't get any attention for whatever reason. And then when he's asked about it, he's like, well, I need to become more educated on the issue. Clearly he doesn't. And then over the summer, he said that he wished that he had handled things differently and been more supportive of Daryl. But of course, still, he's not saying anything uh, about the, the actual underlying cause, which as a citizen of the world, Steve Kerr is well aware of, w- of what he thinks on it. But his speech is being chilled because he doesn't want to be the one who's messing up everyone's money. LeBron James had a $1 million sponsorship appearance that he just lost because of this, right? And so if you're Steve Kerr, you don't want to be antagonizing the players in the NBA and making them lose money by your political beliefs. And of course, that's exactly the way that the Chinese Communist Party would love for it to be, where they don't have to tell you not to say it because it's clear what's going to happen if you do say it. And so then from their mindset, I think everybody wins because the speech is chilled. No one says it. And then there doesn't have to be any punishment. Yeah, no, it's really interesting because like the players have clearly demonstrated in the past, in the, in the past few months that they're comfortable losing money for issues they care about. So it's not entirely a... I, I would push back on okay. that, Jordan. I don't believe that the players necessarily think that they are going to lose money for speaking up on these issues. Now, may, maybe they will. Maybe the ratings will go down. There's a big imbroglio about that now where the ratings are down due to in part due to some of these political statements but i i think that certainly in the main consumers for the nba the bulk of the consumers are totally supportive of all of these social justice things so i don't and certainly there isn't as direct a relationship as there is of just oh yeah your games are off tv here in in china and no one's allowed in and your sponsorship appearance has been canceled there's definitely nothing that that is that direct colin kaepernick is showing up in nike ads right so it's it's certainly among most of the people in the nba i don't think that there is an understanding of okay we're gonna lose money and ultimately when it's been hey are we gonna just straight up boycott this no nobody was willing to do that and just maybe a couple people were but generally players were not willing to do that when there really is a lot of money on the line Hualun, could you talk a little bit about broader social media response as opposed to strictly the government's one? I remember seeing things on both sides of blog posts saying this is a big overreaction and others saying burning jerseys and what have you. What was your take at the time and how has this conversation evolved over the past year? At that time, I, I was very confused by how quick the situation intensified. Like, for to be honest, like at first when I saw the Darren Moore's I was not directly thinking of that much of implications because at that time, obviously, most of the mainlanders don't follow what happened in Hong Kong that much due to all kinds of reasons. Sure. But, but the thing is that like, the banner he put on at that time was not directly related to independence or claims. They were related to the extradition bills and like the, the rights or the movement that's related to it. So like it could be interpreted in that way later i soon realized by obviously the backlash but like at that first moment i was like oh okay that's just another one like why does it matter but then uh, over the night it quickly burned over everything i think unfortunately the social network in china last year specifically has been super reactive to this 
I'm guessing it was partly because it happened during the national holiday or the national day holiday, I should say. So that was when maybe, and last year was also the 70 year national day celebration, which is also even more important or influential in the Chinese context, which might steer up more nationalism where people have feelings for the identity or for China as a country. And then I think like the problem is that recently due to the trade war, I think like literally starting from the trade war or from the there's the, the, the obvious turning point when China and US have uh, deteriorating relationships diplomatically. The most of the things in the Chinese internet due to the regulation can be put into a filter or can be put into a specific perspective. Due to the power of, for example, each platform to try to comply with local laws or whatever local officials are interested in, which reflect whatever Beijing is interested. So the platforms might be interested to remove the content that they don't want to see and just stay the content that they like. And that would really hugely tilted what the reality might be or what people really might think. So the problem I always have for this NBA Hong Kong China controversy was that was the Chinese authority really interested in this or was they caught by surprise or were they partially interested in moving it in such a drastic direction? Like was and but I don't really know, but I'm guessing there's a factor there and social network was these days in China is so easily manipulated, obviously, like you, you just need to make sure that the platforms comply with you and like you, you just go to the platforms and tell them, like, oh, and th- this happens on a daily basis, right? The, the Each platform or each news outlet, they can receive a indoor notice that, oh, coming from the show, this should not go on. Like these days, social media works in such a way that like it's very difficult to see how People actually feel like you, you, judging by the appearance, it's very difficult. But obviously, what people make of the appearance might shape their feelings in the future. I, I, I would say that, like comparing to what happened with Mesut Ozil of Arsenal, that was uh, the soccer player was uh, in the Premier League who issued later, I think, who issued on his Twitter or Instagram a huge blog post supporting the Xinjiang or crying out. Louder. That was actually handled not that like drastically by the Chinese like foreign ministry. And I think I will quote, they, they actually responded to Mesut's post by saying that we invite Mesut Ozil to tour Xinjiang to see the reality. So, so, so obviously it's not as harsh as what the foreign ministry have done to the Darren Morris tweet of the Hong Kong supporting for Hong Kong. Sure. Or say, I say, I find it ironic that actually last year, part of the timeline, you can see the Chinese consulate in Houston saying that they're disappointed by the leave of Darren Mori, <laughs> and nowadays the, the consulate is gone. So like, <laughs> that tells you where we are on this whole thing. So it's a, it's a crazy era, and social media, unfortunately, makes everything happen so much faster. Yeah, no, it's interesting with the Xinjiang dynamics, right? Because the there was a nationalist button that, the powers that be clearly wanted to push when when Hong Kong was was in the news. But Xinjiang is something that's much more awkward for the government mm-hmm. to promote and defend. Thanks so much for coming on China Talk. Oh, 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 oh,
去寻找找温暖他的魔法季节，忘出现多掉眼，来来往往匆匆忙忙，人群之中多少离别，跌跌撞撞，摇摇晃晃，展翅蝴蝶，绝后天线，飘飘光光，远远方方，或许你也早已厌倦，要超越了极限，过了时间，从海上天。
My in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over, and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $10 off your first order using the code PREPARED10. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.